0: Hello and welcome to Troublesome Terps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. And uh, today we are going to be talking about a topic that is probably keeping a lot of people up at night at the moment, it's how to start out as an interpreter. Uh, We're also streaming this live at the moment to YouTube, so uh, a a very friendly hello to everyone who is joining us at the moment. And of course, hello to my lovely co-host, first of all, hello to uh, Sarah Hickey. How are you tonight?
1: Hey everyone! Yeah, uh, I'm good. Uh, keeping busy after having moved to Germany <laughs> and uh, a never a dull day. It. Yeah, exactly, never a dull day. But uh, yeah, excited to be here because I, um, I missed the last episode, so it's good to be back. And
2: we missed you in the last episode as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And you heard his dulcet tones already. That's Alexander <laughs> Gansmeyer, <laughs> uh, the, the busy, the busy interpreter joining us from Munich. Hello.
2: Hello, this is Alex with which language may I seduce you today? (laughs) This is a little bit of an insider, but uh, it's great to be here. It's um, kind of weird that we're streaming this live. Yeah, it
0: is, but a lot of fun. Uh, so it I'm just, is. I'm keeping half an eye, and no, actually a full eye, on the on the chat. So if if you want to contribute in the chat, feel free to do so. Uh, so that's I think is a good occasion to say thank you to everyone who did contribute to our little collection exercise before this show. Uh, we were asking you on social media for your. Um, Experience for your tips, your tricks, the things that were surprising when you started as, as an interpreter. So we're gonna get to that. We have a long, a long list of very interesting stuff that we wanna. Uh, very long get. list, right? <laughs> yes. So it's great. A Again, this is probably something we should do more often. Is just ask people for their input because it's really great to to hear from you, and it feels less like we're in a in a bit of an echo chamber here, <laughs> talking <laughs> talking just amongst ourselves, which is great too. So uh, that that is fine, but. Um, Oh, here is Jonathan. Let's, uh, let's bring Jonathan in.
1: Nice, perfect timing. Uh, oh, awesome. We'll,
0: we'll put him on the spot right away, I guess. <laughs> or we can start and so he, he can just ease his way into the show. No, there he is.
2: There ah. he goes. <laughs> Jonathan is connecting to audio. Hello, Jonathan. Good evening. Hello there. So what do you think? Yes or no? Yes or no to what? I don't know. We just tried to put you on the spot.
0: <laughs> yeah, just say yes or no.
2: Just say yes or no. A very simple question. No, <laughs> no. Nah, nah.
0: the, the good thing is we that already is did the intro answer. and everything, so we can jump right in. But we'll we'll leave you we'll leave you uh, we'll give you a little bit of time to to breathe and um, we. We were going to start actually with a a little bit of a look back in time, a a jump back in time, and um, just talk about how we actually started out. And I think, Sarah, we agreed that you were going to go first. So why don't you give us your interpreting (laughs) origin story in in a few words?
1: (laughs) Sure. Um, I was just thinking that maybe I'm not even the best person to talk about this because I've probably done the least uh, interpreting out of all of us. Well, not probably, definitely, but um, so- <laughs> It's not a um, contest, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> no, but- oh, I'm sure um, it is. Yeah.
2: It's easy for Alex to say, he's done clearly the most, so you know. It, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I did my master's in conference interpreting in Galway at NUIG, uh, which was amazing. And then, essentially, as soon as I finished, I had to go back to my old job working in customer service because I was pretty broke after being a student for a year. And, uh, you know, it takes a while (laughs) to uh, get jobs. Um, And then, uh, well, I was based in Ireland at the time. And, um, of course, there's some demand for my language combination, which is uh, German A, English B. But it's maybe not the most... um, Hopping market for that. So it was a bit slow in the beginning. Uh, there were some requests coming in, um, and I lost a bunch of assignments due to price. Um, because, you know, I, I guess that's, you know, something you have to, well, everyone has to deal with. But um, it was hard because um, I couldn't wait to get started. And I was really excited that some ex- assignments came my way. But then I also didn't want to budge on price because, you know, um This is something I guess we were told the whole time in interpreting class, and which is also I think the right thing to do is to not you know undercut and ruin the market and then to better uh wait until something come something else comes around uh, which took a while and in the end, I got my first uh gig then through one of my former teachers, and um he was excited that there was <laughs> that he had a booth partner now <laughs> that he could work with uh so it worked out pretty well for both of us um yeah, and so it was very difficult, I think, to get started if I wanted to just be an interpreter, to be honest. But, um, yeah, well, a few months after my degree, I um, got offered a job doing research, <laughs> interpreting research. So, <laughs>
2: and the rest is history, as
0: they
1: say. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because <laughs> Global the,
2: head of interpreting research. Extraordinaire.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I can still uh, interpret um, while working for NIMSI. Um, I have that flexibility and it's also, you know, encouraged, which is really nice. Um, But yeah, since then, I've basically just been occupied with NIMSI, to be honest, except um, maybe um, every now and again. Uh, Now that I moved back to Germany, I would actually love to um, try and get into the market here because from what what everyone's told me, uh, German-English is the, the combination on the market here. So that's right. Yeah, Yeah. and I still love interpreting, so it's. uh, I would like to do it uh, more again, and um, yeah. But I think it's really. It it was very difficult uh, to even get the first assignment uh, in Ireland, and to not, um, you know, to kind of stand your ground, to set yourself up professionally, um, to not undercut just to get the first job. it's difficult because I think there's so much you're being told about, oh, you know, don't make this wrong move and don't make this wrong move, you know. And everyone's like, it's such a small community. If you make one mistake, this is your reputation ruined forever.
3: <laughs> you know? yeah.
1: and you're like, you know, fresh out of the university. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah,
0: totally. But it's interesting to me that you, you mentioned the sort of a strong role of your teachers helping you you know uh, get a foot in the door as it were because that that was certainly something that we got uh, in a lot of the replies from uh, the listeners out there uh, is and and we asked some of the teachers as well for for their input um, so there were a lot of comments to the effect of you know don't be afraid to um, you know ask your teachers for help um, because I think it's doing I don't know if, if you can confirm this but um, when you were still at university I think we had a lot of Advice on your technique and and how to do proper interpreting and on language stuff and note-taking skills and and what have you, but sometimes there isn't really enough time about the whole business stuff and you know how to start, start out right and and there's a lot of these things sort of floating around. Is don't ruin the market, you know, don't don't push the prices too low, Um, and I think it's it's very confusing in the beginning because you're so afraid of and as as you just said, you're so afraid of possibly making mistakes and, and, and stuff like that. So I don't know, what what was that like for, for you guys when you started out on the, on the freelance market? Did you have that support from your teachers? Was it more uh, just you on your own? How, what did that feel like?
2: No, I think from my experience, was sort of similar to, to Sarah's, I have to say. So when I was in Munich at the language college, I got my first job from one of the teachers because they had a Spanish booth and an English booth, and one of the English interpreters got sick, and then they just kind of... Brought me along on the ride, so everything was kind of already taken care of, and I just jumped in to, to fill that gap. And it was kind of nerve wracking, but really nice at the same time, actually working with your teachers. And yeah, they helped me throughout the entire process, you know, they helped with preparation, with the, the invoicing, all of that. Um, it was really, it was a really nice and comfortable experience. Um, as as a big first job. And then when I was in the UK, after I did my... During uh, during my master's, we already got like a few jobs here and there, uh, either from the faculty or from, from some agencies in the UK. I remember I was doing like some public service interpreting during that time as well, just because you try to like, you know, you do what you can. Um, and then I got really lucky because after I did the master's, I was fortunate enough to teach at university for a year, which... You know, I always like to joke, it kind of uh, covered the basics like rent. And then with all the odd jobs that I got, I could pay for luxury like food. And um, yeah, and then slowly I just started building up the jobs. Uh, there was, we did actually have a module called business consultancy in, in at university, which, you know, kind of, was supposed to deal with all of those things. We had like checklists. If the client calls you, you need to check for this, this, and this. So we had a lot of very hands-on things. But then still stuff like, you know, just very basic stuff that everybody has to do, like taxes or, you know, whatever it is. Those kinds of things you never learn in university. You never learn in any school. They tell you, yeah, you're going to have to do this. But then those things are just... Uh, Get on top of those quickly. That was like one of my, my nightmare sink things. Sink or swim, but, yeah. Yeah, sink or swim. Yeah.
0: But I Get guess for the tax tech advice, stuff, there's, there's pay other... Pay a tax advisor.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Either you do that or, or you... Or just, use online,
3: or just use online accounting and save yourself a yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I discovered the service that does all my bookkeeping automatically for me, and I just have to tick to say that's correct. Yeah. Or that changed things. Oh, it's worse. Well, you know, back in my days, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> Joke. I'm just. This is a joke. it's a joke. Yeah, but I, I would say to any student that's listening to this, it looks a lot. I'll, some of these online accounting services, especially if you want, for example, I have to pay for the most expensive package because I accept transactions in four currencies, and I insist that my transfer wise, which is how I deal with most of my foreign currency, is checked automatically. Mm. There's only one online service that will do that, and they will only do that on the most expensive package. But considering it's cut my annual accounting down from two to three days to an hour, yeah, I I would say it's worth it. Yeah,
2: it is totally worth it. I, what, I, I, J- I
3: totally agree.
0: Yeah, Jonathan, what what did what was the transition like for you from uni to the real life out there?
3: Uh, depressing, awful. So kind of could have asked for help from my teachers and actually there was a a tutor who i think i mentioned well a visiting guest interpreter who i think i mentioned on a previous show who was really helpful but what happened to me and i don't think i've told this story is that we were we were told and it's true there isn't enough work anywhere in the uk really outside of london that you can be just an interpreter and even inside london it can be tricky apparently um and so we were advised that if you had French, the best thing to do is to sign on with a French secretariat. So I went to do that. The first and only project I got offered through the secretariat clashed with with a, a it with something that I already had on, so I couldn't take it. And ever since then, I've never heard from that secretariat. And so it was two years, about two years after I graduated, that I got my first interpreting job. Um, you know, I'd done a lot of translation work i tried to do the whole part-time thing, part-time job thing. It just didn't work. Um, and so my first two years were pretty awful, really. Um, eventually, I got my first interpreting job, actually, because of a recommendation from a classmate. And uh, I had a mini, pa- a mini panic attack in the booth in the first job, but eventually got through it. And then it was quite another few months before I got the second one. It's just because it's such a quiet market. But on the other hand, because I realised from day one that, you know, unless we were going to move to France, which for various reasons wasn't on the cards, then I was going to have to learn to do other things anyway. Um, Although the first two to three years were absolutely horrible and I made some mistakes and things, they taught me a lot more about kind of finding other ways of earning money and what other skills I had than I would have learned in another market. I'm kind of glad of that because when you get things like Brexit hitting or COVID hitting, it's not that interpreting is my only source of income. So I can, you know, income drops, but it doesn't drop as much as if I'd been like a 100% interpreter and suddenly COVID hits.
2: But can I just, because... I was talking to a friend of mine about that exact situation because my only source of income is interpreting. And in the beginning, you know, March was when everything got canceled. This has nothing to do with the topic. So maybe I'm sorry for all the the people live. You're going to on the right show. Yeah, you're on the right show. But we can cut this out for the episode. Um, But when COVID hit in the beginning, you know, especially in April, there were no bookings. So I was really worried about that. You know, you have savings and you can weather the storm. And we were talking about whether it's smart to just focus on interpreting because I have to say that I bounced back quite nicely like I'm pretty happy with where I'm at right now and also how quickly things have changed again for the clients that I have and I completely attribute that to the fact that this is all I do like I work with them I'm here for them you know I I organize stuff for them I organize the teams for them and so I had that kind of going forward. whereas on the flip side if you have a side job you have that security so I think there's like two ways of looking at it do you know what I mean like does that make any sense
3: I think, yeah, and I, I think one thing I've noticed is because I always had to do interpreting, and as I think 90 odd percent of the interpreters around here have to do, um, I had the opportunity to do other stuff. And so, like the consulting side of interpreting, I naturally found easier because I was used to having to pull things together. And also, I was used to negotiating with magazine editors and with publishers. So, when a client came, comes in and says, Can you have X? Can I have X? I'm quite happy to sit and explain why, well, you can't have X, but I can give you Y. You know, that negotiation stuff is something that I got used to doing. Whereas I think if I'd just gone through the, I'm an interpreter, I don't know if I w- would have become a consultant interpreter if I, if I hadn't had to diversify from the beginning. Um, and also if if I hadn't gone into research as well, I'm not sure if, I'd become a, if I was, had become a consultant interpreter. But I think that's a really
2: good thing that you bring this up because I think... So I became a consultant interpreter kind of by accident just because, you know, the jobs that I, the few jobs that I got in the beginning always kind of required some finagling and like arranging stuff and organizing stuff. You know, it was never like a nice job that was just presented on a platter. They came very few and far between. Um, So I always just kind of had to figure it out and I just you just kind of, I I just kind of slid into becoming the consultant by accident, just because it's what you kind of had to do, you know, you had to always arrange the the, the equipment and the booth made and whatever. And, you know, over time, it kind of scales up. And what I would like to say to people out there who are listening to this, who are just starting out, um, don't be afraid to take on these jobs. I had no idea what I was doing in the beginning. You know, they called me and I was like, they, they were like, I don't know, we need four booths, Chinese, Korean, French, and English. And I was like, sure, no problem. Let's do it. And then they hung up the phone and then I had a panic attack. And I was like, okay, let's do this. We're going to do this somehow. Somehow it's going to work. And it always worked. And I think... We're, I'm sure we'll come to that later again. Uh, and Jonathan, you also said it, and Sarah said it, and, and it's very true. Don't be afraid to ask people for help. You know, if you're a little bit in over your head, or if you're wondering, should I do A, should I do B? There's tons of people who are who are happy to help you, whether it's your teachers or your, in, I don't know, a mentoring scheme, or mm. whether it's us, send an email to troublesometerps.com or whatever, you know?
3: I, I would also say things like... Um don't be afraid to to go and learn other stuff. One thing that I wish we had been taught at university is your knowledge of the business world is as important as your knowledge of interpreting. So your knowledge of how contracts work, your knowledge of how agreements work. You know, some jobs, you know, you have to have every single booth filled before you send the quote. Other jobs, you know, you can send the quote because you know know the list of people you're gonna get, you know how much, you know, it's, it's fine. And also, the one thing that I wish I'd learned earlier, which I'm only just learning the importance of just now, is for goodness' sake, write down your procedures. Mm-hmm. So, kind if of the you have a certain procedure, thing
0: Alex mentioned yeah. earlier, yeah.
3: So I accidentally that was invaluable. Messed up a quote. Yeah. Well, I accidentally messed up a quote very, very recently and had to go back to the client. Thankfully, they had an additional question, so it was a nice opportunity to. Oh say. yeah. <laughs> I, actually, the quotes a little bit more than I said because I, I messed something up but now I have a written procedure to check when I'm doing a quote because it was one one little thing that I forgot to check so now I have a written procedure for it so even if you're like me and you like to do stuff free form and you don't like to be told what to do write down your procedures you will thank yourself later for it and put them all on like your desktop just in a file marked quoting procedure or consulting procedure or how, just a file that that's right there you that you just open reflexively as a reflex uh, to get everything right. Alex, how did you get started? How was it for you? Because you obviously had a very
2: different uh, thing going on than we did. I have a very different thing going on, yes. <laughs>
0: Indeed. Um, no, but I mean, uh, I think it was the usual stuff to to some extent because I I did quite a bit of freelancing sort of uh, already in university. Doing sort of small jobs at the university, or maybe for small small companies on the side, um, and then you know mostly due to my language combination, I kind of uh, ended up in the whole um, <laughs> in the whole EU <laughs> racket, I guess. So I had Romanian, and that was kind of you know a language that was interesting to the institutions back then. So that's um, that's the direction I ended up going into. Um, and usually, I guess the the procedure is that. Uh, you become a freelancer and then you apply for an accreditation test and then maybe you get invited and maybe it takes longer until you get invited. Um, In in my case, because of the circumstances simply, um, I went straight for a a competition for an actual test to become uh, a staffer because they were looking for people with Romanian at the time. It was just when Romania was about to join the EU Um, and basically did it it the, the wrong way around so I went straight into the competition and somehow passed still don't know how and uh, then I freelanced for a few months so I was on the list because of the successful competition and then you know it just usually takes them a while and, and until they figure out all the paperwork and then uh, and then I became a staffer so it was fairly straightforward um, in in that way and what I think is similar to the stories that you were telling is that I got a lot of support from from great teachers at university. Um, so I've, I may have talked about my Romanian teacher, who I really still <laughs> love, uh, because she had so much passion for the language, and she always uh, she also sort of got me in that direction of you know going deeper with Romanian um, and then signing up for that competition and so on and so forth. So yeah, so from from that perspective I think it was maybe similar to to your story I I never had to get into the whole uh, business stuff.
3: The bonus of being a freelancer is if someone says to me can you come to such and such a place and do a speech which is happening more and more at the moment I can just say yes and I've already got an accounts bucket that it goes into it's not a problem. Um, I'd imagine for staffers if someone says can we pay you X number of euros to go and speak somewhere then you have like a whole list of permissions if someone says to me can you go somewhere I just go yeah okay well, maybe <laughs> you, know, you ask your so wife so first as, <laughs> so, so long as the family calendar is clear yes, totally exactly, fine exactly um, and actually with with the increasing number of virtual stuff the only thing I have to work out now is around toddler nap times <laughs> yes that's a good point.
2: But, you know, speaking of speaking of all the virtual stuff, I think it's actually a good segue since we're announcing segues. Um, are we? Are we, though? <laughs> well, when are when very we? Very um, good. Into <laughs> how things might be a little bit different if you're starting out as an interpreter in 2020. Because I think, you know, th- th- things might be a little bit different. I don't know. Just a hunch. Did, did anything um, happen? I, I don't know. What I'm do not think? sure. I don't think anything's happened. Okay. It's been very quiet lately. Um, yeah, so...
0: I think we just have to establish when when did we all so I started it at around 2005. So I guess that's 15 years already. It's just so we have a baseline what are we comparing 2022?
2: I'm not sure
3: we should disclose our ages here. This this kind of is Not talking age.
2: Well, it's easy to kind of
3: <laughs> I, I I officially started on my birthday in 2008. Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, actually, my my first day of class for the masters, um, I turned thirty that day. Great timing on the very first day. <laughs> so, yeah. Wait. So am I the youngest? Could not go out the night before. <laughs> I thought you Sarah might be was Alice. the youngest. <laughs> Are you the youngest? I just look very young, you know. You but I'm actually do. Very uh,
3: I, I was oh. going to say, did, did you finish your masters just this year?
1: yeah wow. exactly well, I think so I've
2: been freelancing I think I had my first job in 2010 or 2011 I think it was in
3: 2011 mm-hmm. so I mean I now realized that I started freelancing in the middle of the credit crunch yeah. which probably explains why things were so you know so so far my business has had credit crunch brexit COVID. I was just going to say, because Rebecca and Sonia
0: were sharing in the chat as well, that uh, 2020 is easy to compare because they both started out during the last financial crisis, so around uh, 2007, 2008. It's a deja vu.
3: (laughs) Yikes. The thing is about the the last financial crisis, and this is something I'm only realising now, is in the last financial crisis it was really easy to find the international sectors that were still growing. So although interpreting was rubbish, there were translation sectors that needed work. And so for a while, I did a lot of CV translation because, you know, everyone was losing their jobs, Um, which anyone who still does CV translation, you have my deepest respect. And I did some legal work. And I was told by my wife I wasn't a nice person if I was doing legal translation. So, you know, but yeah, it's... 2020 is a hard time to start. But on the other hand, I would say in some senses... The graduates now who are trained on the tech that didn't exist when we were training, apart from you, Sarah, (laughs) that that didn't really exist when we were training, um, I actually think that they've got an advantage because they're probably natives in remote simultaneous
1: I would imagine that it that it helps, yeah, as well. I mean, um, during our training, we didn't do remote simultaneous, but we were introduced to interpreting from videos, for example. So that was like a, a first step in that direction. And from what I know, um, from what I've heard from uh, NUIG, of course, this year. Um, they had to do a lot of remote work. Uh, I don't want to say the wrong thing, you know, but I think that's what I've heard um, that there's been maybe a little bit of uh, in-class training and then a lot of uh, remote work because, you know, yeah. And this is something I wanted to point out as well, because of course, um, if you're talking about the financial crisis, of course, it's you know never good to start during a financial crisis, <laughs> understandably. But at least the financial crisis, in a way, it, it touched like it didn't necessarily touch all areas of society. You know, it touched like the housing industry and the financial industry, and uh, that had a knock-on effect on uh, all sorts of businesses, of course. But like the situation we're in right now is they're affecting every aspect of life. You know, and then, like you said, you have the added challenge of now everything has to be remote with few exceptions. So you also have to deal with new technologies. And uh, uh, so there's so much more to learn, probably, on top of that now.
3: I remember coming across a study and it surprised me. Um, It was in a business book and they said there was a, a couple of studies done by Ivy League universities. And they found out that businesses that began during recessions, tended to last longer and be more financially sound than businesses born during a boom time
2: mm-hmm. Makes
0: sense. Yeah.
3: so you think about all the businesses that were started during the dot-com bubble like one two percent of them survive more than a couple of years the interpreters who are starting out now it's going to be rough but if you can build a business this year there isn't much that's going to knock you back
2: Sonia in the YouTube comment just said something really, really interesting, and, and I completely agree with her. I think the people who are starting out now, they're not going to be that affected because this is the only market they know. You know what it's I mean? A, like they're It's starting a different out. baseline, yeah. yeah exactly. It's a different baseline. I think the people and she said this, um, so I didn't actually think it, she thought it. Thank you, Sonia. Um <laughs> the, the people who started out two or three years ago who just found their footing, what did she say? She They, they get the rug pulled out from under them. And that is exactly true, and I think that's really tricky. Um... I think, though, there's a different challenge for the people who are starting out now who, or who are in, at university right now. And that's, I think, the, the kind of mindset challenge. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who is a mentor in a mentoring program, and she's not the happiest person right now. So she's not exactly imparting a lot of enthusiasm and positivity into her mentee because she's like, Well, I'm not getting any jobs, why am I why am I sugarcoating it, you know? Mm. F- Fine find another job. Like this isn't great at the moment. And I'm like, Well I see why you would say that, because you don't want to sugarcoat it, but then on the flip side, you also don't want to be like Find something else to do. This is doomed. You know? So I think they have to deal with that. I think once they make that through. I think Sonia's right. Like this is the only market they they, they know, they they will hear of the good old times, as we always do, when interpreters were flown in, you know, first class and had the champagne lifestyle. (laughs) I was actually thinking about that, yeah.
1: I feel like that comment makes a lot of sense with, uh, if you know, you've just broken into the market and then the rug gets pulled out from under you. But at the same time, yeah, I would imagine that if you're starting out right now, there are a lot of other challenges there as well, because... Uh, might be, first of all, even harder to get jobs than exactly. You don't know the um, technology and what does it mean then to not undercut or ruin the market? Because this is uh, not that it wasn't there before, but it's less established. You know, you know less about it with uh, what should you be charging, what is okay and how, you know, the... It's not that there's no rules there, but there's maybe fewer rules or newer ones that not everyone knows yet. So um, maybe that can be a good thing too because it can be part of developing that market more. But yeah, different challenges maybe.
3: Uh, I'm beginning to see remote interpreting jobs come in and I've changed my view from previously I wouldn't consult on remote to now I will. And I'm finding as a consultant that it's harder to get good interpreters than it was before, because um, I, I've, i for example, a recent job that I was putting together a quote for, I went through four interpreters for a certain language, and only one of them was either available or willing to do remote. Um, and... I've also come across cases where, where I also came across cases while preparing that quote of interpreters saying, oh, I've just decided to leave the profession. So if you're a new student, there are, there could be more opportunities for you because there are interpreters thinking about leaving. There are interpreters who are thinking, well, remote is just going to be a flash in the pan, so I'll just ride it out. I've got enough savings. And so actually, if you've got your wits about you, I usually Feel strained receiving kind of emails from people saying, Hi, I'm a new student. Yeah, hi, I'm a new graduate. You know, do you have any work? I usually feel really odd because there often isn't that much around. But actually, if graduates write the right email to the right consultants at the right time, they could actually find themselves picking up work because they'll be more used to it than some interpreters are.
1: Yeah, and um. I also feel like, I mean, if people are saying, oh, this isn't, you know, this job isn't going to last. I mean, the pandemic is also not going to last forever. I mean, it's lasting a while now and it's going to last for another while, but it's not going to be forever. Fingers crossed, right? But other pandemics went. We got eventually, rid of the black plague yes. eventually. So, no, <laughs> I mean, okay, this is, uh, you, know, you know, I'm exaggerating, but um, I'm just saying, you know, there will always be one way or another.
2: Would not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: There will always be a demand for language services and for interpreting one way or another, but the market might, might change. You know, that's the um, difference. And to what Jonathan was saying as well is, um, I can understand that people go, oh, you're a new student, so you're inexperienced, so maybe we shouldn't hire you. And I'm not even referring directly to you, Jonathan, but in general, Um people who hire interpreters, but it's like, how do you get your first job then, you know? (laughs) This is not just a question technically for interpreting, but for lots of markets where it's like, you have to have experience to work in this job. And like, well, how do you get this experience?
2: okay but I do think at the moment there's sort of a unique opportunity for young interpreters to to get jobs more easily perhaps because a lot of established interpreters might have clients who have to switch to remote who might be doing a conference on zoom and the more experienced interpreters might not have any experience on that but they because you know they've been busy they have families to deal with or whatever and the young interpreters have done tons of webinars on zoom they've done all the tests on all the different platforms they really know what's going on and so if you have I mean this is true for a lot of young interpreters that I know, like, they've done a crap ton of webinars on, like, honestly, didn't we all do a crap ton of webinars during the pandemic? Yeah. I swore I was never going to go on Zoom again, and here we are tonight. But, um, <laughs> but you know, they actually have the opportunity, if they're in contact with these people, to be like, you know, if you ever have a job on Zoom, maybe not as overt, but, you know, they can offer their help in establishing um, proper... RSI kind of protocols for them or show them the ropes, show them how the technology works. And in that way you can sort of get roped into their teams possibly. So maybe it's actually now easier because you have a concrete incentive to book these young interpreters or at least kind of consult them on what you can offer to your clients as an a more experienced interpreter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
3: Yep. I would also say that I underestimate, while at uni I underestimated the importance of recommendations and so there was one job that I was uh, I wasn't consultant on, but I was senior interpreter on, and I found out that my booth mate was chosen because she came highly recommended by someone else. And you know, she she came into the job kind of caring, and I said, "You know what's up?" She said, um, "I don't like to tell you this, but this this is my first paid job." I said, "I oh, don't, no problem. I'll take you under my wing." And actually, there are certain jobs where you could, you know, it could easily be your first job. But, you know, there, there are certain interpreting projects that I look at and go, right, I really need a super experienced team. And there are other projects you look at and go, it's this is a job that's okay for your first paid job. You know, we know the difference. Um, and so, yeah, I think young interpreters, they probably have better business skills than we did coming out of university. I don't know about anyone else, but my business skills sucked. And so, actually, they have a chance to leapfrog some of the more experienced interpreters because they know the tech, they know the they have been taught more business skills. They are social media natives. They can just get on with it. Um, and actually, I wouldn't be surprised if the interpreters gra- who graduated kind of this summer become consultants far earlier than we did. I
1: mean. Sorry, I definitely agree that, you know, um, to what you're saying with um, the current situation, offering um, more opportunities right now also for young interpreters, because maybe some of the more experienced ones either don't want to do it or can't do it. And, you know, you can get a foot in the door that way. But, well, again, you know, remote um, is one option. But what about the traditional uh, on-site? you know, or when we're not in a pan- pandemic? You know, of course, now this is a situation, but in general, how do you, break in, right? Is it mostly, I would say, through, yeah, contacts, right? Like mentors, teachers, someone who is willing to say, okay, this is your first job, but I'll take you with me anyway, or I will vouch for you or recommend you or something like that, you know?
0: And I was going to say something similar. So, because we were asking the question, how is 2020 different from 2008, for example? And I don't think we have to necessarily make it about the pandemic, but something that I was what i've been sort of jealous of is that a lot of professional associations nowadays have these mentoring programs so where experienced colleagues takes um take uh, people under the wings again and help them out and there's this sort of direct relationship which i think makes it much easier to ask quote unquote stupid questions uh, in 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 a safe environment i guess and also increasingly the online practice groups and also real-life practice groups uh, that have been popping up, uh, which I think is a fantastic uh, initiative. So I really... I mean, we had our local practice group at university, but I think as soon as we went sort of our separate ways after the, after graduation, that was it. And, and now these... Um, other practice group are more institutionalized and more open and, and um, also work online these days, which is really great. So that's something that's also different compared to, yeah, I guess 10 years ago, maybe.
2: Yeah, definitely. There are definitely more resources, more tools available. And just generally, uh, I feel like a little bit of a higher degree of professionalization within the industry. Um, I mean, I remember when I was at, when I just graduated university, I was, I put together a mentoring scheme for an association in the UK and I presented it to them because they didn't have it. And they said, oh, no, we don't need an interpreting mentoring scheme. There's not enough of a demand. And I was like, there is. Well, I- I'm, I'm demanding, <laughs> but nobody, you know, But, yeah, it didn't happen. And We know you're demanding, yeah, Alex. You know, know. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyways... Um, yeah, it's but just, also...
3: Yeah.
0: But yeah, just, just to make... Sorry, Jonathan, but ju- just to say that, uh, because Sarah, you said it's, it's all about sort of connections and, and contacts. I think that is something that has changed because it used to be you have to know the right people. And now uh, I think it's much easier to just connect to these existing networks online, you know, practice groups, uh, mentoring programs, that kind of thing. And that's, that's, I think, a good thing. But Jonathan, go ahead, sorry.
3: And also, so when I started out, social media existed, I think, yeah, it did, um, but not in the way it does now. So, I find it really strange that I can like send a Twitter DM to a senior editor at a major publishing house and get a response. Everyone is so much more contactable now. Now, email probably is no longer the best way to contact people, but I was amazed how much work I got by hanging around translation and interpreting forums and just kind of chatting. Um, And I remember once I I got, it was was translation rather than interpreting, but someone sent me an email and said, um, I've seen your intelligent answers to discussions on this forum. Could you do this translation for me? And it was like a 300 euro job. Um, And I got an interpreting job once because of an article I wrote in a magazine. So... As much as everyone says don't spend too long on social media, I think for a new interpreter, it could actually be a really good way of building contacts, especially if you're in a quiet market. You can build contacts outside of your quiet market. And, you you know, once I got flown to a mystery location in the west of France because of contacts. So that sounds you know very it's, shady. That sounds super <laughs> shady. <laughs> it, it felt shady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this it, it was a, a business interpreting job all right i flew it flew into paris got a tgv to a station i'm not allowed to mention got picked up in a black um luxury car did they put a bag over your head driven must have. two and a half hours to a, to a chateau in the middle of nowhere and oh, wow. interpreted until 11 what p.m story yeah and i didn't because it, it was done that really, really quick notice. I got the call on the Wednesday, flew out on the Friday, I think. Um, and to this day, I don't know the name of the interpreter who recommended me for it because it it was someone recommended someone else who recommended me. How come you've never told this story? This is such an exciting story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's not allowed to talk about it. That's why. Oh, well,
3: that's, that's Yeah, that must be it. Well, the, the embarrassing thing was I woke up in the morning in this rather nice... A rather nice room, and uh, Google said, Would you like to rate chat with such and such? And I'm like, No, no, I'm not supposed to be, <laughs> no one's supposed to know I'm here, yeah. Yeah, so if you get a job with a non-disclosure agreement, turn off the location on your Google on your phone, please. <laughs> yeah. But I mean
0: it does I guess there's a flip side to that as well, because we, we got a few comments about um sort of colleagues, especially more experienced colleagues, not being quite as welcoming as it may have sounded uh just now. So there was this one one comment where um somebody was told by a colleague you would make a really good translator and you know there's there's just so much in that to unpack but i think that the intention was c- clearly not a good one in that case and um you know sometimes there's a little bit of or maybe not just a little bit sometimes there is sort of protectionism and trying to you know not let new people move into the market because you know this is my market these are my clients was that something you guys ever experienced uh, luckily, I, without having to name names. of Yeah,
1: course. luckily, I, I personally didn't experience that. Like I said, all the people I knew were very um, welcoming and helpful. But um, when I interviewed someone recently um, about an interpreting market, I won't even say the country. <laughs> um,
2: Did you sign an NDA? Did they put a bag over your head?
1: <laughs> no, I'm just trying to be polite. Do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, no. They were kind of saying, oh, there's all these, you know, new interpreters coming onto the market all the time, you know, because there's more interpreting programs now and there's new graduates every year. And uh, the person didn't seem very happy about it and thought, well, it's just life, you know, of course, like we've all, you know, you were a graduate once, no? (laughs) (laughs) Presumably, Of course, there's new people coming onto the market uh, all the time. And I get it. It means more competition, but you know like i don't know I, I don't think that's a nice attitude to have because it was more on the f- uh, for me always on the on the flip side in our um, interpreting course that we were more taught well this isn't a one man or woman job usually right that is very like you true you want to build good connections and because you usually need a booth mate and you are working as a team or you know so uh, i think this should always be the the approach but yeah maybe some people don't see it that way
3: I've never had protectionist colleagues. I've had, I think I've told this story before, I had someone who visited their university and told me I should seriously think about getting another job. Um, That's about the most I've had on the job or in practice. But I do have, how do I phrase this? I do have colleagues that I prefer to work with. And I do have colleagues that if... I'm consulting on a job, I have colleagues I contact first and colleagues I go to later and colleagues that I go to even after that. I, I do have preferences because one thing that it took me a while to learn was the vital importance of team dynamics. And, you know, there can be people who are great interpreters, but, you know, the... You, they just wouldn't mesh with the rest of the team. And so b- being a nice person is actually a job skill in interpreting. Oh, for
2: sure.
0: That's actually a comment that I think that came from Julia, who said that, you know, it's not only about the interpreting skills, there's so much more that uh, sort of comes into play. And uh, a lot of comments actually also said, you know, take your time and you kind of have to work through this. But I think Julia mentioned, um, yeah, organizational skills, good humor, small talk, uh, chops, you know, and grit, you know, and then that was a nice terminological uh, discussion in Russian, how you would translate grit. But I think that's, that's definitely something that you, that you need, I think is because kind of the the, the flip side of taking your time and, you know, maybe spend some extra time in a country to fine tune your languages. I think the flip side of that is is also grit because, you know, you can work on your languages as much as you like, you somehow have to, you know, put food on the God. table and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, and especially <laughs> if you start out in the profession with a family, like some of us did, uh, you know, that makes it a little bit more challenging, obviously.
2: It's, no, but I think it's true with, you know, the grit and endurance and, you know, it takes some time. It, it went really slow. Some of the... One, one response, I think that was my favorite response to the whole question. It was just, slow! <laughs> yes, exclamation! It word. was slow. <laughs> um, you know, unless you're extremely lucky, it's going to take some time. And I th- I think I don't know any interpreter who just had huge success overnight. You know, it happened faster for some than for others. Unless you instantly start up for the institutions, maybe then it's a bit different because then you're in like a different environment. But even there, I'm pretty sure it takes some time to kind of get established in the booth and, you know, the different teams. So just um, it, it takes some time. I think at the beginning, there's nobody who starts out just doing interpreting. Um even I did translations, and I hate translations. Um, <laughs> so you know, you know, it it just takes some time, and don't get discouraged. Um, be open in the beginning, but how how should you say? I don't want to. Make it sound weird, but, you know, like try different things. Just see what kind of feels comfortable to you. And I had this conversation the other day with a, with a colleague of mine um, from Spain who was struggling on taking certain remote jobs or not, and I was always like, just listen to your gut. If your gut says it's, it's not right, then don't do it, you know, because at the end of the day, it's not just about the money. Even in the beginning, it's if you take the money and then you feel like total crap afterwards. Was it really worth it? So just listen to what feels right. And even in the beginning, listen to that gut feeling. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take some time.
3: I I would also say one thing that I learned the hard way was if you have this niggling thing of, oh, I really should do such and such. So one of the breaks for me, one of the things that changed my business was doing a PhD. And I remember one of the most, one of the weirdly strong memories is I remember there's a set of double doors in the, the language is building at idiot Well, I remember pushing on those double doors and as I pushed them, uh, having handed in my master's dissertation for the second time, I felt this thing, go back and ask your master's supervisor about doing a PhD. Went, no, 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 no. Three years later after, you know, mental health issues and after, after a mental health episode and after just really not enjoying stuff. Um, I was back three well, three and a half years later, I was back doing a PhD. And I thought if I'd asked at that moment, I could have shortcutted two or three years of not enjoying myself, not, you know, not doing what I really should have been doing. And for those two, three years when I was supposed to be doing marketing, I was reading research. And it, it took me a while to get the hint that if I'm reading research rather than doing marketing, that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> it's a hint. <laughs> Now I'm I, now I'm equally happy doing both. And someone taught me that you're supposed to enjoy your marketing as much as you enjoy the work. Hmm. And I did not enjoy the. If the way that you're trying to get interpreting jobs feels like a chore, think about different ways of marketing.
2: That seems like a bold statement, though.
3: Well, I, I went through. So when I started out, I did the send your CV to any agency you can find thing and actually if i had done if i'd been confident enough to do what i'm doing now which is you know the, the go to meetings the meet people the generally chat and make contacts and make friends style i've had more opportunities doing that than i ever had through the you know mail a hundred cvs to a hundred agencies well email 100 cvs to 100 agencies there's enough different ways to market that actually there's there's one that you're going to enjoy doing if you if you find the right one and because I thought it was normal to apply for however many pros job ads and translators coffee, translators cafe job ads and email so many agencies, my marketing felt like a drag. And I felt depressed trying to get work so that when I actually did get the work, I was already feeling down to begin with. I think
0: that's the thing. I mean, it, it is a bold yeah. statement, but uh, yeah, unless you work, you know, for big institutions or, or big clients where you have a lot of repeat business, I guess, uh, marketing is just, part of the job and I guess if you, if you if you can't enjoy that then a big part of your job just kind of sucks and I mean you can yeah. just you know work through it but yeah I don't know maybe life's telling you something I don't know
2: well but I do think also with um, I was in the exact same situation Jonathan was in at the beginning because I was living in the UK and the UK is a complete agency dominated market so I think in, in a market like that it's also a completely different um, situation you know it's a numbers game more than anything else, like you do have to contact all the agencies, and then eventually they will get back to you. And I think it was a chore. But I think it really did, like, you have to really know your market and really find out the approach of how the market works and how you get kind of a a toe
3: in the door, like half a toe, like a Mm -hmm. pinky toe. I think I would have been actually better off trying to meet as many interpreters as I could. Because the agency work that I got Tended to come on the basis of my colleagues recommending me to the agency anyway. So a lot mm. of the agencies wouldn't actually really respond until another interpreter said, you should get so-and-so. That is very true. And so yeah. if I had spent more time, you know, putting feelers out, finding all the local interpreters, even finding the interpreters out across the UK. I would have done a much better job and I would actually have made more friends than the whole dating agency and such and such a list. I must send my CV to them. And the majority of them didn't get back. And the ones that did were because someone said, you should get Jonathan. But can I just add
2: to that real quick? And this also goes to a few of the comments that we got from I don't even know a ton of people from Danielle from Karen from, from just a bunch of people and it, I think it adds nicely to, to what you just said ab- about how to meet people you know in the beginning you do have a lot of time I remember I went in the beginning I had nothing but time because I didn't have any work and then eventually I got involved in the different associations you know I volunteered and um, giving back to how the profession you get... say again
0: sorry giving back to the profession just want exactly, to exactly giving
2: back to the profession Sophie said that and um, I I think a lot of people in the beginning are hesitant because they're like, oh, who am I? Why should I be elected into an office in any association? Nobody knows me. What, what do I have to give? Well, you have time. You have time and energy. Yes. Nobody else has that anymore. And enthusiasm, me. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so true. You don't have that anymore either. So just <laughs> just apply yourself in the associations and in the profession in that way. And that way, you not only... Um, have something to do, which in the beginning, sometimes I did not. And I was just sitting there. And I'm like twiddling my thumbs and I'm like, well, what do I do now? This is kind of a, this is my job, but it's not really a job. And then you have something to do. And you actually also get to meet a ton of people. And even the people who you don't meet, they will still know who you are because you have an office. Mm. You might send out emails, you, you know, mail blasts for whatever event you're organizing or doing whatever. So I think that is is, is still legit, even in Corona times, you know, host a Zoom, mm. do something. There's tons of stuff to do.
3: And, and also things like, you know, I think we underestimate the power of student writing about the experience of their first year. I tried to be like, I remember starting up my blog because blogging was the new way of marketing when I started out. And OK, my first website does yeah I joke about it in both a recent plenary speech and in um, my newest book. See, I did find the mention with the book. Um, I joke about how awful it was and how it was grey on grey. And I, I wrote like a fetist. Oh, seriously. If I'd written like a normal human being and just said, this is what I'm going through, you know, this is my experience. You don't want to tell people, you know, what you ate for dinner. But, you know, talking about the processes that you're doing and how you're trying to market, the fact of you writing that puts you out there and you'll find people who, you know, if you've... If you graduated a year ago, you'll find people who are just graduating going, oh, it's really encouraging what you wrote about your first year. Giving back in some way or other and just getting your name out there, you don't have to be a diva, but just be places where people are, whether it's online or in the real world with the mask on. You know, just be around people and get to know your association and your colleagues.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, get to know your colleagues. But on the flip side... This is, I don't know, you know, there's a lot of stories where people actually come into a market, especially here in Munich. I've heard two people tell me the story and they came here and they did like handwritten notes to members of the AEK and then they sent it and they delivered it like personally sometimes. And, you know, get to know your colleagues, but don't, I, I feel like that was weird. I felt really uncomfortable when they told me those stories. Maybe that's just me, but, you know, be normal.
3: That ship sailed a long time ago for
2: most Territory. Well, that's salary. true. And I'm including myself in that. But, you know, <laughs> Sorry, just, yeah. uh, I don't know. Handwritten notes delivered to the door just feels weird. Add some chocolate at least.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's maybe a little difficult as well to find a balance with. You know, you want to do everything right and you want to meet the right people and don't make a, like misstep or whatever but at the same time you need to also remain uh you right and remain uh genuine and not be uh you know uh i don't know i don't want to say kiss ass because i feel like that's a little mean and people are just trying but you know just to still just be grounded somehow just be you um, but yeah, I think it's hard because I guess the theme that stands out from all the comments and from our stories is that it just takes time yeah. and you take one step at a time and you try to meet people and then uh, they can give you advice or they have contacts and you take your first step. And to me, actually, um, going back to university to do my master's, um, i was just as much interested in getting like value out of the actual like the content you know learning the skills and all that as i was in making contacts because i think th- that is one of the best things you can do by going back to university is you you will get a network of people you know you will meet experienced people in our case all of our teachers were experienced in interpreters and then you have this whole other group of people who are also then just trying to figure it out after right so, but I just mean, I'm, I'm only mentioning this because people are saying like, go meet people and know your market and get to know the people in your market. But as a new student, you might go like, well, where do I find those people? You know, of course, online a little bit, sure. And, you know, you can look out for networking events or something, but it's good then to, yeah, really utilize what your university or whatever course you're doing has to offer to like at least point you in the right direction probably.
3: National associations are great as well. Um, I am very glad that I joined ITI as a student because, and I didn't my the one thing that I did wrong in those first two three years, I didn't take full advantage of the advantages of being a member of ITI. Um, I didn't push the doors that I should have pushed, and so you know, push every door that you can find to push, and just give stuff a try, and. I was joking with my PhD supervisor once saying, you know, all the stuff that people are paying me to write about and, um, you know, to set up interpreting teams is everything I learned in the first three weeks of my master's. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, you know, so uh, I, I remember one one job and the, the agency phoned me up and they're like, so this is the setup of the job. How many interpreters are we going to need? It's like, you're an agency, okay is like day one stuff
0: but
3: we could do that (laughs) but you know people have mental blocks sometimes and you know simply because you're a graduate you know more stuff about interpreting than clients so you know don't be overconfident don't be daft but use what you know already and if a client says uh i need interpreters for french use your Contacts to work it out, or just say I know a really good consultant and and ask them to do it for you.
0: That's the frustrating yeah. stuff sometimes, right? Is that y- y- your skills are so good <laughs> when you're graduating, especially note-taking skills, they'll never be that good anymore. And you don't get to, you don't get to apply them, you know, or just occasionally, and so you get rusty. And that I think that's just very frustrating. But that's yeah, again, that's part of the that's part of the landscape. So. Uh,
1: Maybe we need to take a little bit of the pressure out of it as well. Like I felt a lot of pressure in the beginning with, like I said, you know, oh, don't make the wrong move, you know? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be taught, you know, how to do this right and everything and not to undercut and all that. You know, I agree with those things, but there's a little bit of that, like, like Jonathan was saying, like try out things, yes. you know, like be a little bit bold and like, you know, don't go crazy maybe off the rails. But, <laughs> you know, there's certain things that you can probably try if you feel like, okay, maybe, you know, if I like that, it's not immediately over if you make a small yeah, mistake. For sure. And also
0: that's how the profession moves forward, you know, is people joining the profession, trying out new stuff and some of it sticks because it's good. So, you know, there's a there's a value in that, I think.
3: Yeah, that's how we got Tablet Interpreting. Someone tried that out. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I wonder who tried that.
0: Well, SimconSec, for that matter.
3: But, you know, I I actually want to add
2: to what Sarah was just saying, and Jonathan, in in the whole conversation has been about that, you know, um, we're all going to make mistakes. Everybody's made mistakes. Nobody in this podcast has not made some serious mistakes in their career. And we've all survived. We're all here. Um, Nobody's usually doing it on purpose. And people, you know... If you learn from the mistake, if you don't keep doing it 20 times over after the first time, after someone's told you, hey, that wasn't cool, you should probably not do that. If you then do it 20 more times, then okay, we might have an issue. But if you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I'll do it better next time. And then you do it better next time. It's fine. I think a good idea about interpreting, and this is kind of what I live by to this very day, is just fake it till you make it. You know, If you get a job request and you have no idea what it is, unless it's like quantum physics and you're, I don't know, You don't want to blow up the universe, but, you know, usually just say yes to the job unless you feel super uncomfortable and you'll figure it out, especially in the beginning, because you have nothing but time to prepare. Um, You have colleagues you can ask. And that's the second thing that I want to mention is don't underestimate your network that you have when you've graduated. Because a lot of those people that I graduated with, I hire them, I work with them, they hire me, because, you know, we know each other, we know what we're good at, we know what we're bad at, we know how we can help each other, we just kind of, you have that rapport already, because you went through university together, you've been in the booth a bunch of times, um... You know, you know other languages, they might know other people that you don't know because they live in another country, they join a different association. So don't underestimate that network. And the third thing I want to mention, and then I promise I'll shut up, is don't be afraid to um, try to get into AIC early. I think, especially for me, so I'm just going to talk about my own experience. In the beginning, it always kind of seemed like the holy grail of, you know, interpreting don't get too close or you'll burn and like Icarus, you'll, you know, go down in flames. Um, It's not that bad. People don't rip your head off. But I think especially if you join early as a pre-candidate, you'll get a lot of opportunities presented much more quickly than if you didn't because you're just on people's radar. And... This doesn't only hold true for AIC. I believe this holds true for, for all associations. But I really experienced a shift when I joined IEK as a pre-candidate because people just notice you differently in your, in your local market. So don't be afraid of that. It's, it's nothing crazy. It's, it's, it's an association. If you make mistakes and you learn from them, if you try to improve, if you're a good, decent person,
3: you'll be fine. So we've had a question in the YouTube comments where Rebecca Shorrock has asked, what's the biggest mistake each of the panelists have made? I think think the second biggest mistake was me reading out that question. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Mistakes? (laughs) Who? Us? We? No. Okay, I'm going to go kind of meta here. Um, I'll start this. Um, My biggest mistake was thinking that I wasn't a business person because I didn't want to, I didn't feel comfortable running my business the way that I'd seen other business people do it. Now I realized that actually, if I had from the beginning thought, how is it I want to run this? How is it I want to market? What do I naturally feel connected to doing? I would have been a lot better off and I'd have saved myself, you know, a lot of issues if I had started out saying, I my business doesn't have to look like everyone else's. Right. You know what comes naturally to me, and it'll take you a couple of years to find that out, but if I if I'd started with I don't have my business doesn't have to look like everyone else's, I think I would have been much happier and probably had more jobs to begin with as well.
2: So let me go very hands-on. I'm I'm not the meta person. Um I think one of my biggest mistakes, but then you know, it turned out to be fine in the end, was when I moved from the UK to Germany, um, I didn't know my market. And that's why I said, know your market, get to know your market. So from the UK, which was a very uh, agency dominated market, I went to Germany, which is a very non-agency dominated market, but there are agencies and they're usually not the greatest. And so coming from one agency market into another market, I thought, oh, well, I'll just work for the agencies. And if you know the market, if I had known the market at that time, I would have known that they usually pay lower wages, it's not very encouraged to work for them, etc., etc. And I did it anyways until somebody told me, you know, I know you're from the UK, they do it like that over there, which is fine because it works for that market. But over here, it's not really the market you want to be in, it's the grey market, you know, that ominous, whatever. Um yeah, but they told me and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that. It didn't even occur to me. Thank you for telling me. And I'll just kind of move in a different direction. Um, I'm telling it now as a very calm story. It was a little bit dramatic for a few days there. Of course it but, was. But, you know, yeah, as it is in interpreting.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about biggest, biggest mistake, but just to say I, I've made the classic mistakes is working alone for too long, taking on jobs I wasn't really qualified for. So, you know.
1: <laughs> i think for me the biggest one was probably just being too hesitant in the beginning and be a little bit intimidated by all the that's why i keep saying let's take some of the pressure out of it because for me that was like a big blocker in the beginning um just being so insecure of what i'm basically allowed to do and whatnot <laughs> instead of being it's the right word, a little bit yeah. more confident and bold you know without overstepping again you know not going off the rails here or anything but just to have a little bit more confidence and um, to try stuff, you know? Yeah. This is, it can really hold you back, I think.
2: Amen. Amen, sister. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> was that, I hope that was uh, a big enough of a confession, I
2: guess. Yeah, Rebecca, did you get what you wanted? <laughs> From all
0: of us.
3: They're all ashamed of us. The chat has stopped now. It's <laughs> stop. They're like, yeah. no, didn't.
1: <laughs> I feel like I don't have an awesome story to tell because my experience is still too limited. Um so I maybe I can talk about I could talk about other business mistakes but it's not really relevant for interpreting a think so. <laughs> Yeah,
2: that's fine. It needs to be juicy, Sarah. Just get something juicy. It,
3: it is is the money hidden in a chest somewhere. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah do we do, do we have a
0: we have lots of takeaways, I guess, as usual, so time oh my God, so many kind of difficult yeah. kind of difficult to sort of summarize everything, but
2: it's a fountain of wisdom here
0: what, yeah, no, but what I really liked is is sort of what you just said, Sarah is sort of people, you know don't don't be too intimidated by things although that's different advice to give you know it's it's easier for some and maybe more difficult for others but um also the whole point of um be yourself and i think demi in her comments uh said uh, have a voice which i really liked um because always sort of reminded me of the whole discussion about accent which we didn't or you know which we didn't get into today probably for the best right jonathan so uh i think th-
3: What would I know about accents?
0: I don't know. I was just seeing you there. uh, (laughs) Maybe you know someone. Yeah, maybe you know someone. Exactly. Exactly. So... I guess with that, we, we can wrap it, up, wrap it up. And maybe, we yeah, maybe, Rebecca, we do a TT confessional at some point and we all anonymously share our biggest mistakes with the dis- dis- <laughs> distorted voice. So
1: <laughs> the Dark Side. <laughs> we, can't,
0: <of> <laughs> we can't be identified. There hasn't ever been a horror movie made about interpreting, has there? <laughs> exactly. So it, it was great to have the, the YouTube listeners and viewers uh, along for the ride. So maybe we do that again someday. Uh, And again, thanks to everyone who submitted stories and ideas and thoughts, uh, interpreters and and teachers. Thanks for that. And uh, with that, we close this episode of The Troublesome Tropes and uh, see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye,
1: Bye, everyone. Bye.
2: Bye. Oh my god, is the recording still on?
0: Yep.